This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast where my friend Susie Dent and I meet each week to talk about words and language, because we love both words and language. Essentially, it's an etymological show. Etymology meaning what, Susie Dent? Well, she goes back to a Greek word meaning the truth. So I like to think that it is digging around for the truth of the story behind a particular word. Um, So it's uncovering the stories of our word origins. We're very thrilled that this podcast is international. We have listeners all over the globe. And they may not know that in this country, Susie Dent and I are known, if at all, for different things. Susie is particularly known for having been for a quarter of a century or more the doyen of the Oxford English Dictionary in a daily program on Channel 4, one of our TV stations, called Countdown, which is a game show every day about words and numbers. And she knows all about the words. How many years have you been doing that? I've been doing it for 30 and actually using oh the word God. doyen really reminds me of one of our old warm-up men, lovely Dudley Doolittle. And he never quite got doyen right and he would introduce me to the audience as the Dunyon of Dictionary Corner. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh. that's me. Now tell me about you and your well, book because that's out now. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yes, my book, I'm very pleased to say, is proving to be a bit of a bestseller, not because of me, but because it's about a fascinating subject. Uh late Queen Elizabeth II, and it's called Elizabeth, a Intimate Intimate Portrait. portrait. Mm. And it's a serious book, though often I'm known for being a nitwit. I've been described as a nitwit, not entirely insultingly, because it's to do with my wearing knitwear when I appear on television in this country. But before I explain about the knitwear and talk about knitting, which I thought might be our theme today, the phrase nitwit You're a bit of a nitwit. Yes. What's the origin of nitwit as a word? Well, I would love to think that it actually goes back to the first sense of wit, which was general knowledge, essentially, or common sense. So your inwit was your inner sort of knowledge and your common sense. It was also your conscience, really. And your outwit was your perception of the world externally. And so if you had outwit, you also had kind of good gumption and common sense, rumble gumption as it used to be called. And so I immediately assumed that a nitwit was to have no common sense at all. But sadly, the dictionary says it's much more recent and that the nits might actually be to do with the nits that you have in your hair. Hmm. I know, I was very disappointed by that. And I don't quite understand what the link would be, except if you've got nits in your hair, perhaps, I don't know. Well, anyone who has children knows all about knit. So a bit of a kind of broken thread there for me. I, anyway, that's where it comes from. So were you a knit twit with your knitwear? 
I began wearing colourful knitwear on television back in the 1970s. So that's almost half a century ago. In fact, it is half a century. I, I wore one first. I, I founded in this country the National Scrabble Championships. Mm. And at the finals in the first year, it was in 1971, somebody brought me a lovely a sweater, which we call a jumper. In America, it's called a sweater. Did you know that? Yes. I think jumper is related to jupe. Dress, etc. Exactly, yes, because a jumper was a sort of short dress. And, and sweater. Sweater is something you sweat in. Uh, they brought me a sweater, a bright yellow sweater, with a Scrabble board on the front saying Giles Brandreth loves Scrabble in Scrabble tiles. I appeared on television wearing that and I was noticed. The jumper was noticed. And then I remembered having been told by an advertising man that people remember of what they see on television. 83% of what they recall is what they see, only 17% what they hear. So I thought, ah, well, what they see will make a difference. So I began wearing colourful jumpers, which I still do. Uh, even on a TV show that I do here called Gogglebox, there's a celebrity version that I take part in. And another participant on Celebrity Gogglebox has been the Olympic gold medalist, Tom Daly, mm. who is an incredible diver, but he's also an incredible knitter. He yeah. loves knitting. He knits by the poolside. Uh, and I'm a big knit fan. But Indeed. also don't forget Sally Taylor, because do you remember at one of our live shows, uh, she came up and gave us oh, little knitted yes. versions of ourselves, which is, I have to say, it's on my shelf right now. I can see it from here. I love it. So we have we have knitting fans listening to our show and I, I love knitting. I can knit myself. Can you knit? Well, I could knit a little bit, thanks to my mum trying to teach me when I was little and, and crochet too. But now I think if I dropped a stitch, I wouldn't know what to do. I think I can safely say that any knitted item would be a disaster. Well, and mine are pretty disastrous. I, when I was in the Cub Scouts as a little boy, I got my knitting badge and I knitted a very, very, very long scarf. Well, it seemed very long, but that's about all I could do was a very, very long scarf. I became a bit more sophisticated and ultimately I teamed up with a, a friend of mine called George Hostler, who was an artist, a sculptor, and we created knitwear together in the 1970s and 1980s, which became, had a bit of a vogue. People like Elton John took up our knitwear. Diana, Princess of Wales, she wore some of our sweaters. And I now have a label with uh, George Hostler called Giles and George. So I know quite a bit about knitting, but I don't know where the word knit comes from. Where hmm. does the word knitting come from? Well, when we knit something together, we are essentially uniting it, aren't we? We're tying it together. And that figurative sense is also behind the literal sense. In Old English, you have to remember that the K was pronounced in those days because it's of Germanic origin and the Germans pronounced their Ks. So a boy is a Knecht, for example. And that's exactly how we used to pronounce things. And so this was Knitten which is related to a German word, knitten, and that is a sibling of knot because that was the sense really of knitting. It was to tie with a knot or to knot string to make a net. And that sort of, you know, is all folded in together. We had an interesting question actually from a purple person, Lenin E. Vasquez Toledo, who's from Mexico. Great and name, he, if I may isn't say it brilliant? so. He's asked if there's a connection with being a trickster because in French, tricot means to knit. So he's wondering if that uh. trick is actually behind a trick uh, and the answer is no it's a lovely idea learning but no trick uh, well tricoter I should say in French to knit that comes from an old French word meaning to 
beat with sticks, really. It was all about kind of striking. So when you're knitting and, um, you know, tap, tap, tapping with your needles, that is what you're doing and nothing to do with tricking someone, sadly. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the sort of substance of knitting and yes, you know, what we knit. So yarn is not particularly interesting. That is, well, I say it's not particularly interesting. Sorry to diss where yarn. Do, where but does yarn come from? It just is from a Germanic word, which was looked very, very similar. So there's not much of a story to that. But Wool has been used in various different ways. And wool is first recorded in around the 8th century. So we're talking around 700. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to a root that's shared by a Latin word, lana, which also meant wool. And you'll find that in lanolin, because oh. lanolin is oil from wool. And trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes. And that was first used, I think, of an American lawyer in the mid-19th century. So the idea is that the wool was the lawyer's curly wig. So if you are wooling someone, you are basically pulling the wig over their eyes so they're not actually seeing the truth and they are beguiled by falsehoods. That's the idea, which I like. And then woolly-headed, which is something I feel particularly often, I think that's just in the idea of having something woolly has this kind of slightly fuzzy outline to it, which is quite a good metaphor when you're feeling a bit befuddled, I find. You mentioned dropping a stitch. What is Mm. a stitch and why is it so called? Well, in Anglo-Saxon times, so again, we're going back to Old English, stitch was any sharp stabbing pain, right? So this is not just the pain in the side that we know as a stitch today caused by exercise. And the word is related to a stick, really. And Shakespeare was the first to mention a stitch brought on by laughing in Twelfth Night. If you Mm. will laugh yourselves into stitches, follow me. So that was the first sense. And the sewing sense of stitch didn't arise until medieval times. So we're talking about the Middle Ages. And I guess, again, the idea is of stabbing something. So you are puncturing something with a needle just as pain punctures your side when you have a stitch. And then we have the proverb, a stitch in time saves nine. That's 18 century. And that obviously means if you sort out a problem now, you'll save a lot of extra work later. No particular significance, we think, in the choice of number nine, except it rhymes with time, sort of. And people talk about a bobble hat, a knitted hat with a bobble on top. Yes. What is the origin of the word bobble? It's a lovely word, isn't it? I loved reading the origin piece in the Oxford Dictionary for this because it says that short words are often the hardest to pin down. And this is particularly the case with bob because it can be used in lots of different ways. So if you have a hairstyle, the bob hairstyle, it means short. A bob tail on an animal is short. A bob cat, for example. A bob sleigh is a short form of a sleigh. But other things involve a quick, short movement. So people bob bob up and down and boxes bob and weave. And I think the bobble stitch, kind of creating that sort of ball, I don't know which of those it would be. I suspect not short. I I imagine it's the kind of quick movements, really, quick movements in the same place. But to be honest, the jury is slightly out on that one. We're doing all this with knitting needles, um, as in finding a needle in a haystack. Mm. But these needles are... Well, they're quite big, a knitting needle, isn't it? They're different from a little needle, but it's the same word. Yes, and ultimately it goes back to the German nadel. That's how it came into Old English. But ultimately, probably a Greek word meaning thread. Uh, So that makes sense. And then if we needle someone, we're irritating or annoying them as though we're sticking a pin in them. Yeah, but nothing to do with noddle, as in uh, another word for your head. Because that's to do with nodding. You're nodding. Your your noddle is nodding. Yeah, although your noddle originally was the back of the head, believe it or oh, not. I like to noddle. 
my noddle with my bobble on my bobble hat. Yeah. What is frogging? We've talked about this before. I know the word frogging has come up. On, yes. On okay. Well, this is, if I was to knit, this is what I would be doing all the time. Uh, you're basically ripping up your knitting and starting over <laughs> because you, you've made such a mess of it or you want to correct a mistake. And I love this. And um, we did cover this. You're right. It is apparently so cool because you rip it, rip it, uh, when <laughs> you are ripping up your, your wool. And it must have reminded someone of that ribbit, ribbit of a frog. Oh, really? Do you think that's the origin? Apparently, which is lovely. Well, I tell you what, I, because Remember this, but I'm going to double check this in the end. Do double check that. And yeah. While you double check it, I will tell you, and I, I'm sure when it came up last time, I did tell you because the picture immediately came into my mind of me as a very little boy, aged three or four, sitting at my mother's feet. My mother was a very keen and a very skilled knitter all her life. She hmm. knitted, you know, for her own children, then her grandchildren. Uh, but I would sit at her feet when I was a little boy with my hands out in front of me about a foot apart, uh, stretched out in front, and she would unravel the knitting that she'd done and loop it around my hands. Was oh, your mother a knitter? Can you picture Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, my mum still knits. I absolutely can. Um, and just, just to confirm, the OED does corroborate the fact that it is a punning reference to ribbit, ribbit. Isn't that lovely? 1995 is the first record that we have of that. But you mentioned raveling as well. And it's interesting because you would expect that ravel would be the opposite of unravel. So if you unravel something, you take it apart. And if you ravel something, you are possibly putting it together. But actually, the Dutch raveled first and it meant to both entangle and disentangle. So it's thanks to them that we have this sort of slight, what they call Janus word, one that faces both ways. And in the early 17th century, we took on unravel and they essentially had the same meaning, ravel and unravel. So whoever said that English was easy. I only have, as knitted garments, I only have sweaters. Yeah. I have got a nightshirt I can imagine you in a nightshirt. With a nightcap. I mean, it, it's a red striped okay. nightshirt. And I've got a lovely hat with a pom-pom. It's a Scrooge-like one. This is how I'm imagining it. It is. It's very Scrooge-like. I look very Scrooge-like. Uh, and, and I love that. And I've got lots of scarves. I've got some bobble hats. But I don't have any undergarments. You don't wear undergarments? people used to wear knitted. Oh, you mean no knitted I underwear. do wear undergarments. No knitted I don't, yes. Uh, we're going to discuss going commando and not wearing undergarments when we do our next live show. You know that? On the 18th of December, I do know we're due to be at the Fortune Theatre in London, on stage, you and I, talking about undergarments, underpinnings, unmentionables. Uh, uh, People call them undercrackers, do Uh, they? Is that one of the words for them? Um, Have I made that up? (laughs) Uh, No. Undercrackers, that's hilarious. Men's underpants. Are called undercrackers. undercrackers. But I think underwear generally undercrackers in my book. Yeah, I think so. But I don't like the idea of knitted underwear. People no. in olden days, people used to wear knitted oh, underwear. Oh, yes. So do you remember the um, word shiviness, which is the discomfort caused by new underwear? I imagine a lot of shiviness when it comes to knit knitted underwear. Oh. Anyway. If you want to come to one of our live shows, simply go to somethingrhymeswithpurple.com or follow us on social media. But somethingrhymeswithpurple.com is the place to go. Shall we take a quick break? Absolutely, and come back with some, maybe some idioms and knitting-related phrases, and then we've got some great correspondence today too. Oh, I'm knitting my brow in anticipation of that. Welcome back to Something Rise with Purple, where Giles is instructing me on the art of knitting, with which I have only a very... uh, (laughs) 
the bare minimum of knowledge, a very tangential relationship. Well, I know about the craft of knitting. The art of knitting was really in the hands of my colleague, George Hosler, when we, we teamed together. He was the artist. I just had amusing ideas. Mm. It's a great craft. And of course, traditionally associated with men because it was sailors who were on long sea journeys were considered to be great knitters. Yeah, and-, and it's only in more recent years that it's become seen as a, a, a female craft. But now I think, I hope, Everybody can do it. And actually young people particularly too. And I remember when I lived in Germany in the 1990s and early, well, in the 2000s as well, I remember, you know, any subway journey that you would take, you would see students, particularly men, but also women oh. knitting away. And it was really cool thing to do. And, and Germany's got a lovely relationship with knitting, actually. It's never been something consigned to old age, which I think it, it has that reputation here, doesn't it? That is changing because knitting get-togethers are happening Good. everywhere. And people have knit and natter no, sessions where they get together. They have tea, coffee and do some knitting. Yeah. Sometimes I'm afraid, also known as these gossipy sessions, uh, stitch and bitch. Oh. Not just knit and natter. Stitch and bitch, I've heard. But that apparently is one of the phrases people hook up to. Oh, hook up. Is that a knitting phrase? People hook oh, up together uh, to go knitting? I think that hook might be, you know, used in a sort of general sense, if you like. I am just looking now, a hook up, 1903. That was a connection or combination of radio or TV broadcasting oh, facilities. 1903? And now since, yeah. 1903, radio? And, well, well, I well in odd. terms of... The, I mean, I didn't think radio really got going until the 1920s. No, it says especially, a connection or combination especially of radio or TV broadcasting facilities. And it's earliest forms, probably not. But 1922, in a manual, how to make vacuum wireless receiving sets, they talk about amplifier hookups. But nowadays, obviously... Yeah. It is, in a slang sense, actually from 1980s, a romantic or sexual relationship, especially a casual one, is a hookup. Uh, so I'm not, not sure oh, the hook really? is specifically needles. I think it's from the idea of casual. casual. That, hence the expression hooker. So-and-so was a hooker. That's a more recent, as in hooking yeah, up for hook, casual relationship. Hooker is, in the sense of a sex worker, I think will be much, much older. Um, okay, so 1567... A thief who snatched away articles with a hook, a pilferer, oh. and then 1845, a prostitute. So someone who hooks someone else, I suppose, is the idea. Reels them in. So that's the noun hookup, but the verb to hook up um, actually was mentioned in 1854 as in using a crochet needle. Uh, Miss Townsend hooked away with her crochet needle. So pretty old, that usage. Well, there you go. I said I was knitting my brow. I wasn't really. I just wanted to know the origin of that expression, yeah. knitting your brow. Because 19th century. Why is it called knitting? Because there are lines on your brow. Yeah. But are they knitted together? Why do they? Well, I think in a way, if you knit your brow, they do come closer together. Your eyebrows, don't they? So you almost have a monobrow. <laughs> I think oh, yeah, maybe yes. maybe that's the idea. Have you ever seen yarn bombing? There's quite a lot of yarn bombing near me, which y- I love. Yarn bombing? Yes. What's yarn bombing? It's also called, uh, I love this, graffiti knitting or nifiti. <laughs> and this is where lampposts, I, I mean, it's just so clever, lampposts overnight suddenly acquire this kind of almost like a leg warmer uh, going oh, all seen, the way I've down. I've seen Near me, there are letterboxes, post boxes yeah. that have been covered, that have been given to sort of little hats. It's such a lovely to keep thing. Keep them warm. Uh, it's a it's kind a of, charming form of street idea. art, also called guerrilla knitting. Guerrilla knitting, but yeah, it's covering objects or structures with with these lovely decorative knitted coverings. It's it's gorgeous. 
It love it. I love the arm bombing. Uh, and hats off to the people who do it, because I imagine it takes quite a long time in the middle of the night. Yeah, not just hats off, but particularly knitted bonnets off. If you know more about the language of knitting than we do, or you want there are particular specific words that you're after the correct etymology of and mm. want Susie to help, do get in touch with us. Uh, our address is simply purple at somethingelse.com, and something is spelt without a G. Have people been in touch with us this week? They certainly have. Scott Hales is the first, because we recently spoke about kidnapping and kidding someone, if you like. And a, a kidnap literally was nap or napping or nabbing a child, essentially. Um, and a child is called a kid because of the idea of a small kitty goat, a young goat. So it fairly, fairly sort of obvious, but you wouldn't expect it to be, I think. But anyway, Scott says, recently, a group of us volunteered to learn how to repair a church wall. The wall is made up of flint and coping stones held together with lime mortar. To help shape the wall, we often needed to nap, spelt K-N-A-P, the flints. This led us to discuss the word nap and its various derivatives, such as a knapsack, uh, taking a nap and various other uses. And he says, any help on the subject or word would be greatly appreciated. So mm. I went delving into the OED, as I always do, and to start off with knapsack. Now, this is a, this is a, an outlier, really, because this goes back to the German knappen, again, that hard K, which meant to bite food or take a snack, and suck, which meant a sack. So a knapsack, knapsack was first used by soldiers um, for carrying food supplies. So mm. it was essentially a bag for snacks. Now, the sense that Scott mentions in architecture and archaeology and, you know, wall building is essentially it, it, the nap here is to shape a piece of stone by striking it so as to make a tool or weapon or a flat face stone for building walls. And it goes back to a Dutch and German word knappen, which meant to crack or crackle because the idea is of striking someone and making a hard short sound so this is the idea of knocking or rapping and finally scott mentions taking a nap and that's not spelt with a k and is very different this is an old english word that means obviously take a nap is to doze or to slumber and lots of siblings in different languages you'll find a word in norwegian that's spelt pretty much the same way but we don't know where it comes from but it isn't to do with a knapsack and it isn't to do with napping a wall but it did take me off on a, a lovely etymological hunt so thank you for that scott well done isabel cornfoot great name has been mm. in touch hello susie and giles please could you tell me more about the etymology of the word squall i don't hear it used so much these days but i've heard squall being used in relation to the wind and sea and is more commonly used by older family members that are either living in the US or the UK, as often paired with gust. I'd be interested to know the history of gust too. I've also heard school being used when referring to a moaning younger sibling. Stop that dreadful school! Now, I don't know if that's a creative use or a correct use of the word. Either way, I'm fond of it. I love listening to the podcast and have been listening since the beginning. I currently live in Wellington in New Zealand, but I was born in Canterbury in the UK, and the podcast is a nice tie back to home. Ka kite, Isabel Comfort. Isabel, thank you very much for being in touch. And uh, tell us the etymology of squall. 
Well, just start with gust, because uh, that was an aside from Isabel. That's from the Vikings, and it goes back to a word meaning to gush. So the idea of um, something kind of coming out forcefully was then transferred to the wind, gusts, gusts of wind. And squall is very similar, really. It's interesting because I've not heard squall in the idea of crying out loudly. I've not heard any mention really? of a babies squalling. No, I've not. That was completely new to me. I'd have spelt it S-Q-U-A-W, but maybe that's wrong. That says in a squall. Oh, no, no. Isabel's right. It is to do with oh. squalling. And this is another Viking word. This oh. time one svala, meaning to cry out, which is probably imitative in origin, imitative. So it, you know, replicates the sounds kvala. Uh, and it's related to squeal, that idea of crying out, if you like. And it is related to the squall that is a silent and violent gust of wind, because the idea, again, is of wind squealing and making a, a sort of intense blowing sound. So both of those do go back to the same route, the same Viking route. Brilliant. If people want to communicate with us, you know where we are, purple at somethingelse.com. And you know where we are at the end of each podcast, because Susie always gives us a trio, a threesome of interesting words. And what have you got in your, your grab bag today? My grab bag. Well, it was interesting. I was on a train thinking of these, actually. And I kind of went into the Oxford English Dictionary in a different way, in that I entered via the thesaurus and thought, I wonder what's a good word, old word for this. So I, I kind of started off with a definition. And it, this was one I hadn't really expected. I was thinking about knitted brows and I came across the word metopomancy, which Ooh. is M-E-T-O-P-O-M-A. N-C-Y. Now, mancy, if it's got that in its word, it means divination of some kind, so foretelling the future. And this is, from the 17th century, divination or foretelling the future by the lines on the forehead. <laughs> So rather like reading a palm, apparently some people can read the lines on your forehead and predict your future, which I thought was pretty interesting. The second one is hamsterkauf, a German word meaning hamster buying. And hamsterkaufen is essentially panic buying, particularly, which we all remember from lockdown when people were coming to verbal, well, fisticuffs essentially over loo rolls. Hamsterkauf is panic buying because a hamster will stuff things into its cheeks for later use. So I just quite like hamsterkaufen. And the egg of Columbus. Have you heard of this, Giles? I've never heard of the egg of Columbus. It's Where great. do you come up with these things, honestly? The Egg of Columbus is a brilliant idea that seems easy once you know how. And it actually does derive from an apparently apocryphal story from the 16th century. So Christopher Columbus was essentially told by a group of naysayers that his success could have been achieved by anybody. You know, it wasn't particularly special. And so he comes up with a challenge to prove how superior he is. And he invites these people to take an egg and make it stand on its tip. Uh. They try everything every which way, but they botch every attempt. They give up and then look at Columbus who taps the egg on the table, gives it a flat bottom and voila, the egg stands up. And that is why the egg of Columbus moved into English to mean something that's really easy when you know how. Oh, I love it. That's a great trick to play. You do remember, children, if you're <laughs> going to try and do this, boil the egg first. Otherwise you end oh, up good with point. 
lot of mess on the table. With a boiled egg, that really works. Yeah. With a raw one, it can not work quite as well. <laughs> How about a poem? Do you have a poem for us today? Yes, I do. When I finish today's podcast, I'm going to a funeral. Another one. I go to a lot. I've reached that age. Mm. This is a friend of mine who died comparatively young. I, I met him 22 years ago. He invited me to join him and some friends of his in Paris to mark the death of the great Irish playwright, poet, Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde, born 1854, died 1900 in a hotel in Paris on the 30th of November in 1900. So 100 years later, 30th of November 2000, uh, my friend, who's called Robert Palmer, whose funeral I'm going to, he invited us to gather in the very room where Oscar Wilde died to raise a glass to the memory of Oscar Wilde. I mean, he's looking for a poem to read at the funeral. The poem I'm going to read you is not the poem I've chosen to read at the funeral, but this poem is a well-known poem by Oscar Wilde. It's called Requiescat, and it was written in memory of Oscar Wilde's younger sister, who died not long before her 10th birthday in 1867. And according to her mother, Isola, that was her name, she died of a sudden effusion of the brain. Mm -hmm. And Oscar was only 12 at the time, and he was inconsolable when his sister died. Anyway, Oscar Wilde wrote this poem in the memory of his sister in 1881. Tread lightly, she is near, under the snow. Speak gently, she can hear the daisies grow. All her bright golden hair tarnished with rust, she that was young and fair, fallen to dust. Lily-like, white as snow, she hardly knew she was a woman, so sweetly she grew. Coffin board, heavy stone, lie on her breast. I vex my heart alone. She is at rest. Peace, peace, she cannot hear, lyre or sonnet. All my life's buried here. Heap earth upon it. It's a touching poem, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, in memory of his sister. So anyway, uh, there we are. So I'm going to a funeral. So let's think of all the people who are going to funerals today. Um, well, and, I will be um, thinking of you. How old yeah. was Oscar Wilde when he wrote that? He was an adult by then, but he was still quite young. And of course, he was young when he died. When he, he died, was only, yeah. I think, 46 yeah. when he died. But she was not quite 10. There's nothing so heartbreaking as the, the death of a child. And at least no. my friend, whose funeral I'm going to today, he lived his Full score, seven, you know, what? what is the line? Uh, three, three score, score and years ten. and ten. Three mm-hmm. score years and ten. That's what the Bible promises us. So he had at least what was promised to him. Good. All right. Well, we will be thinking of you. And thank you to everybody who has joined us today on our knitting trip. I have learned a lot. I think I might take it up, actually. I'm not sure. I might get one of those kids' knitting sets um, and have a go. And if you can't, if, if you haven't got the patience to do that and you've got a lot of money, um, you could go to gilesandgeorge.com and uh, look at all my beautiful jumpers. Honestly, enough flarnecking from you, Giles. <laughs> flarnecking is the indiscriminate uh, selling of oneself or one's goods. Thank you to everyone who's joined us today. Um, please keep following us wherever you get your podcasts and do recommend us to friends because we would love to extend the purple community. You can join us on social media at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook or at Something Rhymes with on Instagram. And for more purple even, why not consider the purple? Plus Club if you can for ad-free listening and special bonus episodes on words and language. 
Yeah, well, it uh, leaves me time to say something rhymes with purple is a something else and Sony Music Entertainment production produced by Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, Teddy Riley and... I reckon he's off yarn bombing because he's never here. And now he's the original nitwit. Gully. Gully.